Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. Every week we look at the technology behind the energy news and review this week's issue of Rethink Energy, which you can find at www.rethinkresearch.biz and then click the energy button. I'm Peter White and I'm joined today by hydrogen and wind analyst Harry Morgan. Hello. Solar specialist uh, Andrew Swanson are still awake in remote Australia. Hello there. And our publisher Simon Thompson. Yes, indeed. Hello. On the show today, we'll be reviewing the measures Europe will put in place to get off Russian fuel in- imports, but not at the expense of missing climate targets. We'll take a brief look at the world of alternative battery chemistries um, with some big orders issued this week. And we'll also look at the California governor who wants to spend $5.2 billion. What does he want to spend it on? But it's categorised as a reliability reserve. We'll, we'll find out. Uh, what he's going to spend it on. And finally, we'll ask Simon what caught his eye this week. First um, first off, though, let's um, get summarise EU's move. Uh, Harry, what have they done to get off Russian oil and gas? Yeah, so I, I think we talked about this, Peter, and a lot of the, a lot of what the EU's announced has been announced somewhat before. Um, I think the key the key things really to pick out are the, the increase in renewable energy targets. So they're going for 45% of European energy mix powered by domestic renewables by 2030. That's up from previous target by uh, of 40%. It's also aiming to ramp up its target for energy consumption. So that is aiming to reduce that by 13% by the end of the decade, rather than just the 9% that was uh, before. Um, I think so the strategy broadly falls into three strokes. So you've got the energy saving measures, which are, are really key. They're, really, they're actually really pointing towards individual behavioural changes, actually encouraging customers to use less energy. So whether or not they can achieve that is yet to be seen, but they believe that those savings could amount to a re- reduction in oil and gas demand, and obviously, therefore, Russian imports by around 5%. The second prong of their, their attack is to directly replace Russian fossil fuels with other fossil fuels in the near term. They're looking at deals in Egypt, Israel, Nigeria. And then the third prong is by far the largest the most important is renewable energy. It's a huge increase in solar power most uh, most chiefly. So we're actually looking at tripling solar capacity between now and, and 2030, which uh, obviously is, is, is a huge undertaking. Do we think they're going to hit any of these targets? I mean, realistically, governments make claims of you know we're going to be zero emissions by 2050 and then fail to take any concrete steps the eu i've got a little more faith in because they can be quite coercive on the individual 27 countries and uh, that make up the eu but you know we've seen failures uh, across europe to um, reduce energy consumption i mean let's let's how are they going to reduce energy consumption Have you, did you go into any of the detail yeah, so I mean, a lot of what they're talking about in terms of reducing energy consumption is moving towards insulation in buildings um, and high efficiency appliances. They're uh, also looking at other, uh, other pricing measures to incentivize the use of electricity at different times of the day and uh, switch towards heat pumps as well. All right. So, so, so those are things which so, so reducing the the amount of energy that electricity that a device use any device in the home is under their control. They they make policy statements about that years in advance. You get three or four years to hit a target, and then the next device that comes out has got to use less than X power, and any new functions have to use even less power. And that's been going on since the EU started, and they're very successful at that. That's 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 a that's that's where the nine percent was, but jumping it to thirteen percent, they've got to do something they've not been very successful at, which is energy efficiency in buildings. You can do new new buildings, new buildings. Not many are going to be built 
between now and then. So it's really about old buildings and uh, getting people to care. There's got to be some kind of incentive uh, and there's got to be some strict regulation around that. One thing that really plays to their uh, strength this time is the fact that energy prices are so high. I mean, we've seen that already driving customers towards uh, rooftop solar and residential battery storage. So if that can then drive them towards uh, things like insulation measures, if those are incentivized by governments, then that could really see an acceleration there. I think the, the EU, as, yeah, as you said, Peter, they are good to some extent, they're reaching targets. We've not seen them install enough wind power necessarily um, to reach their targets for, for renewable energy. But one thing they have done as part of the, the repower plan is they've they've provided laws that will allow one year um, simplified permits for some wind and solar projects. So that will that should really accelerate the deployment of those projects, many of which are already such trouble. As long as they don't get caught up in the same way that, that, that FERC you know, gets caught up, you, you you announce something as a set of politicians and then the um, the civil servants that are meant to be allowing these simple one-year permits ignore it and then you don't enforce it. I mean, that's that's something that goes on all the time. I'd be very surprised. So, so I think renewable energy, I mean, wind farms are not going to, onshore, are not going to get suddenly get one-year licensing in the face of local NIMBY opposition in Germany and the UK and uh, some of the other countries, which have got famous NIMBY problems. I was, I was looking up um, the polysilicon uh, expansion numbers because I was, I was wondering if, uh, if any of you were going to ask me if it was possible to build all this extra solar and, and accelerate um, development. And I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think, uh, but, but polysilicon, as you know, takes a couple of years to build a factory someone's got to fund it those who don't believe don't fund it uh, it takes a while to convince people um the eu won't fund it well what i was going to say is that the chinese are overbuilding it later on on in the decade so through the latter half of this 2027 time frame i think we will have enough polysilicon and the other parts of the solar supply chain can't get bottlenecked in that serious a way it can become more expensive but it doesn't take so long to build things so i think you won't have a shortage of solar. I think you can build out the necessary solar, unless you have a, a nice little war in tai, Taiwan or something. But that's not likely, is it? Not like Ukraine um, was. No, well, if China wanted a lesson in in how the world will unite against uh, an aggressor, they've had one. Hmm. So uh, I think I think you're right. It's that's not likely, but uh, it was looking quite likely maybe a year ago. I, I, I still I still struggle. Investors in Europe are particularly. Um, are really sanguine and and they'll look at this and say well if china's overbuilding polysilicon i'm not going to fund this because at their whim china can bankrupt me and i want to be at their whim i mean we saw mayor burger get out of the equipment market for solar because all of its customers were in china if you're if you have a polysilicon uh, uh, manufacturing plant in europe and you've got higher costs You've got higher electricity costs. You basically got all round higher costs, but you you may well be able to go to the next generation technology and and get over that. You're still at the whim, the global market whim of supply and demand. And if that's in the control of a single politician in China, you don't feel good about it. Therefore, you don't do you invest. Think, do you think permitting and planning uh, will be made easier in the EU for major projects like gigafactories or solar equipment? Well, and of course, gigafactories are not a problem. Gigafactories uh, don't, don't poison the water. Gigafactories don't uh, usually rely on uh, renewable energy. Um, 
and and they you know the the, the things they make leave by truck um the uh permitting is is something any you know the type of uh permitting tends to be either fossil fuel i.e it leaves by pipeline and therefore leaks or or some other um um process which is um which is dirty um but but mostly people hate uh, wind farms because they think they believe they can hear them and and they don't want to live near one and they think it's going to drop the uh, their house prices and they are and they continue to complain to this local council and the council says okay we we won't grant a permit and then you have to have a, a, an explicit process that says this is kicked up to central government and they've overridden your denial of a permit and it's all got to happen quickly without appeal and that's not the way planning laws are across Europe at the moment. So forcing forcing in, in a uh, a one year permitting process for wind projects that will change things quite a lot, won't it, for wind? If it happens, it, it should change. It should change things hugely, I th- and I think it will happen. I think it is just a case of finding places for those projects to go. I think that's probably where we'll see the largest issue in places like Germany in particular, where we've seen a real slowdown in onshore wind, is that there have been um, regulations put in place to, to actually stop wind farms being built within a certain facility of buildings. The biggest thing they could do, I think, really, is devolve the power of that. So you can have individual councils and community actually deciding where those wind projects can go. Um, I think that's something that we've seen in, in Germany, um, and we've actually seen some real success in saying, okay, this state in particular can decide its own regulations, and then we're seeing much more community-led wind power, which is obviously much more beneficial in terms of actually decentralizing that generation actually getting the most out of the renewable energy efficiency of those projects so i think that level of decentralization and facilitating that facilitating community projects facilitating rooftop solar projects i think that's the best way that europe can really satisfy this target of getting sort of 1.2 terawatts of renewable energy capacity by by 2030. So the permitting will, will be, be slower then? Uh, the permitting... Because um, individual states will be responsible to the local individuals who will say, I don't want it near my house, and they'll raise a complaint at the local council level, and then th- they'll go, okay, well, we'll make our our distance from a home bigger than the net, the federal average, and everyone will do that, and then we'll be back where we started. That, that's not really what we've seen so far. We've generally seen that they're moving as fast as the slowest man. I think the... Um, what i'd almost expect to see instead is that we'd see um these see, see maybe one or two um sort of states or regions in each country say okay yeah we will allow onshore wind within any within the much shorter distance from buildings we'll see them actually have a real success in terms of community projects we'll see those regions with far lower electricity bills and far greater shares of renewable energy and i think that sort of success will probably spread i think once you see the the benefits of having these projects so closely located to uh, areas of demand, I think that's when you really start to see community-led uh, onshore wind really grow. I mean, we've seen it within um, rooftop solar as well. And I think that's, again, something that the permitting needs to increase. I mean, that's something that also is included within the repower plans is that they'll be man- it'll be mandatory to install rooftop solar on any uh, new building built in, in certain categories. So that will be interesting to see how that develops in Europe. Yeah, I mean, uh, history tells us that a centralised federal veto is what's always needed when the local community says, uh, we've decided not to give this planning permission. And you can appeal to the government, to the central government and they say, yeah, it comes within the terms. You've got to approve it. And if you don't have that, yes, one or two regions accelerate, but not enough to make up for the 
other regions who decelerate. I mean, I, I just just history tells you tells you that that that's how local politics works in every country in Europe. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll be. In, I don't. I'm not expectant of a, of a great success from there. Sorry, sorry to be cynical. No, I think it's what is all to be seen. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they manage it. I think there's obviously it depends whether or not they cut corn in terms of environmental concerns and environmental uh, permitting. Um, I think that's something that, that we'll have to see. I th- but there definitely does need to be something to uh, reignite. On I mean, you look at the situation in in America for hydro projects, right? At the moment, it t- takes ten years to get any kind of approval for a hydro project. Um, they deliberately put hurdles in the way so it costs a lot of money. They can do it on on the basis of one species not being existent in a particular state, um, and they can take a species that's got about you know five members and and uh, hold up a process. And no one's got any right to overrule that. And so when Biden says he's going to, and he did last week, you know they they, they say they're going to get hydro. The hydro regime's true, or Congress is, is looking at that. Um, they will fail again, and unless a big heavyweight comes in, cuts a, a, a law right through it, i.e. the president, if you're in America, or, or the, the European Parliament actually passes an act, um, unless you actually get that kind of support for it, it won't happen. Yeah, which is why you, you, you've been so bullish about offshore wind, and why you're right about offshore wind. If you can stick it beyond the horizon... Well, everyone's happy. Yes, and I think that's especially going to be the case when floating wind comes into the, into the fore in Europe as well. I think we'll see places like Spain, Italy and France enter those markets and that's when suddenly onshore wind installation rates drop in, the, drop in those markets. I mean, onshore wind doesn't really see any attention in the UK at the moment um, in terms of actual installation rates. So that's the preference towards offshore wind, I think, will grow. I think that's, that's an inevitable reality. Okay, we'll see on that. Well, I'm sure it's a subject we're going to come back to many times. Uh, meanwhile, this week, um, a uh, renewables developer in the States, Pine Gate, has, has, has issued two um, order, well, orders, memorandum of understanding um, over four or five years for alternative chemistry batteries. Um, between them, they're with two companies, um, Enna Venue and um, Urban Electric Power. Um, which which is supposed to supply 4.5 megawatt hours of rechargeable zinc alkaline batteries. Uh, and a venue is to supply over four years um, 2.4 gigawatt hours of nickel hydrogen battery. Um, we have not, in the history of batteries, seen orders of this magnitude um, by a renewables developer who that's been this successful. Pine Gate has got 15 gigawatt hours of uh, storage development on its books. Um, I don't know if all of that will get built, but that's that's what its development pipeline looks like. Um, if all of it gets built, half of that will not be lithium-ion. This is a major breakthrough. This We will look back. I mean, if, if there are history books written about the energy, we will look back at this moment and say that's when lithium-ion lost its grip on exclusivity in battery um, uh, layouts. And, and that's, uh, you know, for the grid. And that's because uh, of two two fundamental things: the floor that, that we've seen at Moss Landing uh, um, and Vistra Energy, where where two projects, um, 400 megawatts, um, I think it's 1.6 gigawatt hours of battery, 
in two phases have both been turned off because of recent sprinkler accidents due to overheating from lithium ion. And then what's been in the news recently is that the big battery in Victoria that everyone says is so successful, turned out that that had a fire that, that burnt through two Tesla power packs and they revealed what they did about it and how they fixed it. And it, you know, and, and it exonerated uh, Tesla because they were, uh, it was, it was, they were unhooked from the batteries um, when this happened. But when you read stories like that and you look at the magnitude of the battery opportunity on the grid and how large it needs to be, we're going, oh, it's just going to get worse. And so people are, you know, it's quite an invisible activity. I'm going to look for an alternative chemistry battery. But here's this company, Pinegate. I've asked them for an interview. I hope they come back to me. Who have said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to take two of these innovators and we're going to put, put our money where our mouth is and do at least 50% of our energy storage without lithium uh, iron batteries. That's, that's, I think, a turning point. If these new chemistries uh, will be successful, how does that uh, um, how does that leave all of the the previous manufacture of lithium ion batteries? That well, well, lithium ion batteries can't keep up with the, the. So everyone's made one mistake, and it's mostly American car companies. They did not believe in the electric vehicle. They've invested too late and too little, and as a result, they're going to need to be bailed out by Chinese and non-US manufacture of battery until about 2027. We did it in our Gigafactories report. We made this very clear that they're too late, they're too behind the times. Um, anything announced now won't arrive on time. As a result, every battery has to go in a car. And if it's got to go in a car, what's the grid going to do? So that's, that's created a supply and demand issue, which has raised the price on batteries. Batteries have been falling in price dramatically over the past five or six years. Suddenly, supply and demand changes that if you've got a shortage of supply. And that's really down to General Motors, Ford and Stellantis taking um, their sweet time about recognizing the electric vehicle um, revolution. So, so that's one issue. The other issue is, we, you know, these things set fire to themselves with an alarming regularity. And um, no one is, is people are quietly saying, oh, I don't want to get involved in it. I don't want to insure it. I don't want a, I'm a utility. I don't want to underwrite um, people's home batteries. I don't want it if it's lithium iron because it's going to set fire to someone. I'll get blamed. Um, I, I think what we're looking at is safer technologies um, that can be more economic. All of them have a real problem. By about 2025, we're going to have solid state batteries they're going to be probably safer and probably much better in terms of energy density and speed of recharge. That's great for the car market. Will They can then, then proliferate back out into the grid market. But in the meantime, it's not going to be, a, you know, we keep saying 99% of the battery market around the grid is um, lithium ion. As of today, it is no longer true. And what's the deal with the this um, Moss Landing project? It had a fire like uh, wasn't it even last year or something? And it still yeah, hasn't. It's had two. It's, it, yeah, two phases. The first phase had um, the, the same issue. They both they both basically had the sprinklers go off. And why why did the battery management system not tell them that the temperature was too high in these units and stop using them? Just just didn't tell them. But at the same time, they said, "Oh, it wasn't the um, it wasn't the lithium-ion battery cells which caused the problem. 
it was the uh, it was a um, a bearing in uh, an air conditioner in one case I can't remember in the other um, and of course that just created a little bit of uh, um, smoke and the smoke triggered the fire alarm the fire alarm set off the um, sprinkler system the sprinkler system saturated and killed the batteries and then leaked to the batteries below which they weren't meant to and then caused the general shutdown now there's an investigation to fully understand what went wrong you'd think there would be a different sprinkler system that didn't use water i'm sure there actually are substances for laboratory use that put out a fire without without being water you can put them into you just just go through the epc whoever Hmm built this system whoever put it together whoever designed the, me- the mechanics of what plugs into what managed to che- to not check uh on the volatility of bearings in an air conditioning system they they wanted to have an air conditioner to cool the heating they didn't somebody somebody cheapskated on the cost of the air conditioner bought a cheap one and didn't realize it might spark there needs to be a series of standards in what you use and they need to be they need to be pre-specified and pre-checked, and you need to qualify your manufacturing process uh, with like a BS, you know, I standard. And that it doesn't exist for um, these large battery concerns at the moment. And if it does, if it does exist, but when it comes into existence, it, it's going to also cause uh, an upward trajectory on price. And it's going to cause a supply and demand. If you are in the category of people who have qualified, you'll you'll be able to charge more of your batteries. So there's a whole costing issue coming down the line, and there's a whole standards issue. I'm sure this will get sorted. I'm sure it will all eventually be a unified, successful business. There is about a three-year window before that happens. And if you're an alternative uh, chemistry battery and you don't make hay in those three years you're out of the race. And uh, here's a couple that have. Do you, do you think there are space for multiple of these alternative chemistries in the, in the future of that energy storage market? Well, you answer me that yourself, because you, you you know, in, in the APE report that you, you, you look, look at the volumes that you're looking at on the grid. Um, I think there's, it's like any, any, any technology, there'll be 27 candidates uh, and three survivors. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it, it, and and, and they won't. And it won't be logical. It's not something you can say. This is the most mechanically efficient process. It's not that doesn't. It's not not how it works because we've seen this in the. We've seen it, and not many people in, in energy have seen it. That your learning curve really does come down go, go very rapidly once you start manufacturing these in volume you build a gigafactory and you start knocking these out you build a second gigafactory you get better at it and better at it, it gets cheaper if you are the technology that achieves that it's not really the most intrinsic best technology it's the one that gets it convinces the investors gets early investment gets great partners to work with that gets volume shipments ahead of anyone else that will get to the Wow, we're safe. Um, we're ch- we're now the same price as lithium iron, so there is no longer a choice because we're safer, and and that that's that that can be any one of nine or ten technologies, but you know it, it, the the clues are in how rapidly they move. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there, there's sort of I mean there's there's gonna be a lo- loads of them that tick that tick all the boxes in terms of using no precious metals and and there's, and um having sort of no fire risk and stuff but i think 
Uh, and it's, at the end of the day, it's going to be a once all the costs fall, it's going to be six months here, six months there in terms of the difference between the payback periods you can expect from these projects. So I think, yeah, it's a marketing push, really. It's which ones, it's which one you'll, it's whichever one your neighbor installs is going to be the one that wins in your neighborhood. So um, I think that's that's how we'll see which ones are going to dominate. And I think it, it, it will be, it could be segmented. I think we could see certain ones dominate in certain regions and other countries dominate in other regions. But I think, yeah, it's not going to be. I'd be surprised if it is lithium mine the home battery storage in, in 10, 15 years' time. Yeah, uh, and, I, and I expect that um, even in 10 or 15 years' time, 50% of the existing installs will still be lithium iron, but not 90. You know, and, that, and that's a huge opportunity for somebody. The, I think you're right. I think in China, it might be a different technology from in America. Uh, that might be a different technology from Japan. That because the investment monies are going in different directions in, in, in those those areas. But it really depends who's smartest about this. The one who's, who tries to keep control of the thing um, and keep it under careful step-by-step manipulation is not going to win. It's got to be uncontrolled hypergrowth and, and uh, taking big, bold steps and partnering with some of the names that can just in, just drop it into all these projects. And I think Pine Gate is, is a great uh, example of that. Uh, it's a big renewables business. Um, some, somehow like they've convinced them. Um, anyway, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, the other story we're going to look at today is um, what's going on with Gavin Newsom's uh, budget. He's the governor of California, um, who's allocated something called 5.2 billion um, for a five gigawatt strategically electricity reliability reserve. Strategic electric. Yeah, I, I got that wrong, but yeah, um, that's you, Andrews. Um, t- tell us what you think he's going to spend 5.2 billion dollars on, because it would have made a lot of people's head jerk up this morning when they read that. Uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, I can't tell you for certain what it's going to be, because um, I, th- I don't think that's been decided yet. I, I would suspect that existing uh, fossil fuel gas infrastructure that was due for decommissioning is likely to be uh, ushered into this. There's also a, um, a nuclear plant that no, no one's said will be part of this that I've seen. But the, California still has this 2.2 gigawatt nuclear plant that has a license until 2025. Um Surely, if yeah, you're going to put that, anything, that's one of the key. What's well, one of the key issues? They've got to replace that capacity. Hmm. You think so? I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that. I think that they, they've gone on and on about this nuclear plant. I don't think it's going to get a reprieve. I think they're talking about replacing that capacity. Have you heard mention of any reprieve? No, it's just uh, from from what I understand, you can actually, you can you can just let them keep running for a bit. And the worst that's going to happen is a total of, uh, annihilation of the whole state. And it probably wouldn't happen. <laughs> it's unlikely. Yeah, Three Mile Island, you weren't alive. <laughs> I don't see yeah. what all the fuss is about. <laughs> um, so there's that, there's the 3.7 gigawatts of gas. Um, I'm sure that some of it will be, well, I, you would think that some of it would be just residential solar and storage, but actually that's a separate one billion tranche. So this five point two billion um, addition to the budget uh, of the reliability reserve isn't the only energy spending, but it is. It's it's five point two billion out of eight billion. So it so is that most- advanced advanced clean energy storage project that's not part of it, is it? That's already funded. Yeah, the, the thing you wrote about a, a few we- weeks ago, um, from from what I understand, that's actually in Utah, which is, uh, and it, it's getting funded from the Department of Energy, so for federal funds. But it is actually still relevant to California because 
Uh, California typically imports seven gigawatts uh, throughout the night from its neighbors. And Utah isn't a direct neighbor, but it's it's still relevant to have that story. The, re- the reason for that is Utah has these underground um, storage salt cavern. spaces, caverns, salt caverns, yeah, where you can store hydrogen. So anything that's going to be hydrogen, they, they've said, well, we've got a, a, a geological um, speciality here let's store hydrogen in it and then you know we want some money for that so california says great as long as you're making electricity for us um you can have some money from us to build it and we'll back it or we'll give you an order a future order for uh, for uh, electricity um and and then they apply to the department of energy for for a, a starter pack of money and and then los angeles will probably pick up the rest of the bill that that's that's really how it how it works and then um utah gets some benefit from that you know the large salt cavern nearest to center of population and and that's so that's that's been in the news in and out for the last three years and uh another thing that was mentioned is um possibly even uh deal generators in this reliability reserve but i mean i kind of said that california shouldn't have to do that but to be fair they probably wouldn't get used much and, and they sorry just what, what generators diesel diesel that's that's so that's just insane. California is supposed to be decarbonizing fully. The the only reason that uh, Mitsubishi has got behind uh, that that project we just discussed and and one other project is because that they can make um, turbines which can be uh, can burn natural gas now and hydrogen in the future, and then the future can just go on and on and on. Uh, but but diesel doesn't have that route. That's just insane. Something I, I've suggested in this article is that this might be yet another casualty of uh, this ADCVD, the anti-dumping investigation. It may have caused planners to lose confidence in the idea that they can just keep building more and more solar because now the supply the, the supply is directly interrupted, at least in the short term. Maybe that's why they're sort of panicking and, and they suggested this. Yeah, I don't think that that level of detail hits Gavin Newsom's desk. Uh, I think he's really just summarising plans that he's known about for some time um, that have become the gone from being on the on the planning uh, board to being concrete. You know, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll chase this down. We'll look at this. We'll find out what the. Uh, um, remember, California has the most expensive electricity in all of America, um, and spending like this will only encourage uh, the amount of high spending. I wonder how Gavin Newsom's going to um, support uh, the poor neighbourhoods that can't afford electricity out of um, at those prices. Mm. Well, um, but we'll go into that another time. There are some rooftop residential subsidies for poor areas, I think. So there's something. Right. Okay. Mm. Uh, and, that, and, that, and that is great. In California, that's exactly what you want. Um Simon, let's round up with um, you look at the news and you uh, give us a view of what what was interesting. Well, yeah, an an item worth noting this week that I thought was interesting, and it relates to what we were talking about at the top of the show, about uh, green hydrogen prices in Europe. And uh, there's, uh, uh, um, we were writing about uh, some analysis from RMI this week saying that it may be cheaper to import green hydrogen into Europe as prices may be $2 a kilo by 2030. Do, do you think that would be, is, is that correct? 
Yeah, so this was the Rocky Mountain Institute, who we're, we're a big, I think, I, I personally am a big fan of in terms of their analysis. I think they're often quite on the progressive side of things. Um, I would say that when we're looking at their projected uh, prices of green hydrogen production, uh, I mean, $2 per kilogram by 2030, I think, and I think higher than that within within Europe, domestically within Europe, I think they're being quite conservative. I think we're expecting to see uh, prices of, of much lower than that much sooner. I think we'll see some projects delivering at $1.50 by 2025. But um, at the end of the day, what they're saying is, yeah, the big conclusions of the report were, firstly, um, that blue and grey hydrogen will never be cost competitive with green. Again, something we, we very firmly agree with. Um, but the importing green hydrogen from abroad will be cheaper than Europe producing its own hydrogen, which is, uh, I think, it, it it all falls down to the cost of producing the renewable energy to actually produce the hydrogen. Re realistically, when once electrolyzers are, are commodified, their costs are going to be very similar worldwide. Installing them may be a similar cost. I think there will be some adjustment due to labour rates, but the, the, the biggest ongoing cost is that of the renewable electricity to actually drive the projects and when, when you've got areas of of large um of large land access with huge wind or solar resources probably wind ideally given to the fact that you want to produce green hydrogen sort of 24 7 um you're actually looking at places outside europe where those, actually, those places those places exist so um, I think Europe, Europe is aware of this. I mean, if we're looking at even the repower projects, I think they were looking to get 10, 10, million, 10 million metric tons of, of green hydrogen produced in Europe each year by 2030, right? And but also to have the same amount imported from elsewhere. So looking at places like the Ukraine, for example, where you've got a huge amount of wind power resource and a huge amount of land availability, obviously, once things have settled down. Um, we're also, also looking at North Africa um, to actually produce it there. But the it, again, it's the, the big thing there is going to be the cost of um, transporting the hydrogen and whether or not that's going to be pipeline or through shipping it as ammonia. That's going to be a really interesting discussion, and that's something that. Well, whether it's shipped as ammonia or anything else, I mean, I, I did a piece today on um, on chemical adsorption uh, as a, a you know a breakthrough in that that um, that might lead to hydrogen transport at scale. Uh, there's there's um, quite a lot of of possibilities about how how hydrogen will be transported at the moment though everybody is saying it's way too expensive to transport hydrogen um there are two types of engineers on the planet that those who say these are the reasons why you can't do it and those who say let's see if i can come up with an idea of how you can do it cheaper um and unfortunately the energy industry's got too many of the former um but i, I believe many of the latter are working on this problem and uh, we we see something new every week on the cost of transport in hydrogen. Yeah, I think it's it's the bit it's the big discussion, um, and I think it, whether or not it's trans transporting it, storing it. I think there's now starting to be a lot of conversations about how Europe in particular can develop this sort of hydrogen economy and industry, where it's actually yeah, it is distributed and stored across the block. So I think that's going to be really you, interesting. You think that sending it on a pipeline would raise some question marks given the russian situation and how much gas has come from russia on a pipeline uh, you know it's a very permanent high cost capex decision to pipeline anywhere to anywhere um everyone th still thinks of africa as um as a pet project of theirs um and and they they are they kind of a lot of companies think they own a piece of Africa and they think they can set up pipelines out of Africa into Europe. And I just don't see that as being um, the route forward. I'm happy to be proved wrong. 
Yeah, exactly. I, th I think I think the, the big the big thing that we're looking at there, obviously, is the, the reliance on Russian pipelines, and the reason that those have failed is due to the fact that obviously Russian Russia had such a large role in the European energy sector and um, had such an ability to weaponize its energy sector. I think if we're looking at North African economies, the political clout that they have on, on a global stage probably will not allow them to to hold Europe to ransom for green hydrogen. There will be op op uh, opportunities of sourcing it from elsewhere. Each place in particular isn't going to produce necessarily enough hydrogen to be able to dictate the whole market. So I think that's something that we, we also need to be aware of. I think if, for example, we... Um, we started looking at Middle Eastern countries and, and being reliant on hydrogen hubs from there. I think that that potentially does pose a risk. But I think if you're looking at securing resources from across North Africa through various different means, I think that's that's very different. And um, especially especially as as we've said, if Europe is also producing sort of half its own green hydrogen. Uh, yeah, but I think you've got to look at how that half may be produced. I mean, you go to EB charging um, and you, and you get, move on to hydrogen trucks and you look at the hydrogen truck um, refill, refilling stations. Um, why not Why not make it there? Why not get a solar farm across the road, buy, buy the field across the road, put the, put the, use the direct connection of the electricity from that solar farm hold a battery so you can have flat flat 24 7 delivery um make your hydrogen through through small um commoditized electrolyzers and serve it into into vehicles as they go now you're creating a whole economy by doing that because you've got a spare you've got spare outputs and you've got and they're on motorways and you start ending up saying well actually maybe Yes, it, it, usually you would think in Europe the prices of the land and the the permissions would be too much to um, to create a new um, uh, chemical industry, i.e., hydrogen. But that process may take off, and if that process does take off in that way, and it scales, and it, it solves all those problems of this is where you need to refill the hydrogen. It's on a main motorway that it's not in a uh, a large town there's not many ones to complain about it it's it's mostly in rural communities that that could happen so i think you know en engineers are great at telling us what can and can't be afforded without looking at the route to market uh, that changes those economics sorry just me uh whinging again um i think we better sum up the issue is a, a great issue it's got many other stories you get the best from rethink energy when you buy into uh the forecasts and data uh, the weekly analysis is here uh at www.rethinkresearch.biz click energy uh read the weekly analysis and uh, on the right hand side are links to all our forecasts and data uh, enticing you to spend uh, to become a, a paying customer four thousand six hundred dollars is all that takes we hope you have a nice week and we'll be back with you again discussing uh, the future of energy next week thank you